Uh, listen, we're going to continue to talk about fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. <clears throat> and we're going to do it in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen. This is my third teaching today, and I have, I don't know what it is. I don't know if I went toe-to-toe with the enemy, and this is the outcome, or if I, in my sleep, smoked six packs of cigarettes, and, <laughs> and this is where we are this morning. I don't know. Uh, but I'm going to do my best to give you what I have. I have some tea here to help with the process. If this is an annoying sound to you, I have an exhortation for you. Why don't you spend this time, instead of being grumpy at me, contending on my behalf for the Lord to restore my voice. All right? There we go. We're going to have church in here tonight. It's great. Uh, well, listen, if you've been around for the last month or so, you know, like Evan said, we've been exploring what uh, Jesus and the scriptures have to say about our great enemy, the devil. And over these past few weeks, we've talked about the spiritual realities that are present in our world today, those that are seen and unseen. And on this journey, we've noted that some of the greatest, and, and honestly, I think one of the most understated of the enemy's schemes against the disciple of Jesus is deception. And uh, while he may be the God of this age, there is a day coming where he will once and for all be crushed and erased from this earth forever. Amen. 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 Yeah. So today we're going to wrap up our teachings on the devil. And then next week we're going to press into what it means to fight our flesh, which I know you guys are really jazzed about. Some of you are like, this sounds creepy. Yes. Uh, it's not as creepy as it sounds. It's actually going to be really, really incredible. So please make sure you're there. Also, if you um, haven't listened to all the teachings in this series, I would encourage you to go back and do that. These teachings have been really incredible from a lot of really incredible people from all over the world. Um, so make sure you listen and caught up uh, on, on what's kind of been happening. Okay, in your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 4. <clears throat> and while you're turning there, I know a lot of you are going to want to clear your throats through this whole thing. <laughs> Uh, while you're turning there, I want to ask you a question. How many of you were alive and well in the 90s? Yeah, like not this spirit is alive and well in Portland. More like you were actually alive. This is the gathering. I'm like, I don't know. Were you? <laughs> um, I don't know if you know this, uh, but if you were a Christian in the 90s, it was a wild time. Uh, if you weren't around then or you were simply an observer of us at the time, uh, I want to fill you in on a few things. Some of us uh, were, were regularly wearing shirts or t-shirts that said things like, let Jesus heal your achy, breaky heart. Uh, and uh, others were wearing shirts that said a breadcrumb and fish so as to replace Abercrombie and Fitch because it was the pagan retail store that people shopped at. Yeah, some of you, yeah. And even in, during, during Halloween, you know, we would do these things, and I don't know if you guys did them here, but we did things called Judgment House, where you would actually, you'd like walk through a scene where someone died. We did a plane crash and a few other things. And, um, and you'd go to the judgment seat of God, and then you'd go to heaven and hell with those people, and then you could decide if you wanted to follow Jesus. So, so yeah, some, some of us, not all bad, but not, not all good either. Uh, I was in a play called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames regularly. Uh, so this is the kind of thing that was happening. On top of all that creepy stuff, there was a strong movement uh, of homeschooling that kind of ushered in. Yeah, some of you are here. Me too. 
you were ushered in to a season of awkwardness in a generation now that's here among us, and here we are. Now, during this time of the church, uh, they were doing their best, you know, and it was a good effort <laughs> and a good thing at that. And of course, all these things weren't bad. Trust me, I loved my sweatshirt more than anyone. But honestly, I think there's a lot of us who are still recovering. Now, in my household, uh, and my parents' effort to honor the scriptures and to show us Jesus, uh, we cut out and weren't allowed to view or listen to anything that would give the devil a foothold. Uh, So the implications were numerous, but let me give you a few. First, uh, being uh, this idea of something called the Smurfs. If, uh, if you don't know what the Smurfs is, you're not a child of the 90s. So I just want to let you know. Smurfs, and my, the only, this is what I know. They are blue and they wear white hats. <laughs> and I don't really know what they do outside of that. Do they live underwater? Are they in a village somewhere? Are they bringing justice to the world? I have no idea. All I know is that my parents said that they did a lot of magic. And my parents were cautious about how that would like, impact us and our understanding of the spiritual world. And, and so that's my context, so don't bring it up. No Smurfs. Uh, also, if you are like, man, you remember that song from 1992? I'm going to be like, no. Uh, because from the year 1985 to 2001 or two, when I began dabbling with Shania Twain and Dixie Chicks, uh, <laughs> Uh, I wasn't allowed to listen to what culture says was secular music unless you were talking about that wonderful time of crossover when Amy Grant kind of met us in between. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? And we were like, baby, baby, it's about Jesus. I know it is, you know, you know? Yeah, so anyway. Now, I know all of that sounds nuts to us now. And maybe if you're like, I am new to this, whole, this is not good. That, that's not what we're all like. Um, I think, you know, even some of us, I know, have straight up rebelled against it. Um, because, you know, we grew up and we realized that uh, we didn't have to boycott Disney or, like, avoid uh, the culture of Smurfs simply because it looked or sounded different than us. Um, but, but I have to wonder, and I think you should wonder with me, if, if our parents were on to something. What if they were actually more wise than we are uh, to spiritual realities? What if in our attempt to throw off the legalism of the 90s, we've created an even deeper kind of bondage? And as we wrap up this section on the devil, I think it's really important that we don't just move on or over what we've heard, but that we also figure out what to do with it, how we specifically put it into practice. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We don't just want this to be a set of teachings that you go, oh, it's really cool, it's really insightful, it was really helpful. We want it to be something that actually transforms us. And so we're going to settle into that space tonight. We're going to pick up in verse 17, and I'm going to read this to you. <clears throat> so, if, <laughs> so if you're not loving this smoker voice, then listen, it's time to plug your ears. <laughs> Paul writes this, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of their ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, and they are full of greed. That, however is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, 
and to be made new <clears throat> in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their hands that they may have something to share with those in need. And do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. All right. Uh, Tonight, uh, we're going to press into this text. And in this text, we find Paul, an apostle of Jesus, writing to a church in Ephesus. And in this letter, Paul is emphasizing over and over again what it means to be a follower of Jesus, both in faith and in practice, in a culture that was radically out of step with the way of Jesus. And in the beginning of chapter 4, Paul had just called the church to live lives that were worthy of their heavenly calling or of their kingdom-minded calling. To put it simply, Paul was encouraging the church to allow the teachings of Jesus to have its full effect in their lives. And so when we pick up in verse 17, we, fall, we find Paul instructing them on how to do just that. Look down at verse 17. Now, Paul starts out here with a very clear list of what they are to not be like. First, he says, don't be like the Gentiles. And here, Paul is using the term Gentile as someone who worships other gods, not the true God. So another way to say this is don't live like those who don't know or follow Jesus. Now, he's writing specifically to the people in Ephesus. And Ephesus, we know, is a super pagan culture. And the temptation for the church to be like those around them was a real thing. Ephesus was the home to Aphrodite, the sexual goddess of the ancient world. And people would come from all over to worship at her temple by sleeping with the temple prostitutes. Hence, nods, uh, Paul's nod to sexuality here, sensuality here. Now, the Gentiles, he says, were futile in their thinking. And this phrase may seem strange to us because we don't use it all the time, but it is actually speaking to something profound. Futility here means that they were devoid of truth, that they had no moral compass in their thinking and therefore in their actions. And so what we find here is a truth that we've been hearing for the past few weeks, that sinful behavior actually starts in the mind. And if your mind is devoid of truth, then your actions will be as well. And the cycle will go on. Now, Paul goes on here to say that these people were devoid of truth. And as they were devoid of truth, they began to sin. And then they were given into their indulgence in sin. They were living lives that were separated from God. And he says, they are darkened in their understanding of the world and life itself. Now, darkened is another word we don't use very often, but here it means that over time, by constantly saying no to God's voice in conscience and the lessons which nature and history provided, the people had become hard or indifferent and apathetic to sin. 
They were dead to any sensation of rightness or wrongness. And they were reeking with moral insensitivity. And so what Paul's saying here is really serious. He's saying that the people, to the people, that the result of giving into sin over time, even in really small ways, or agreeing with the enemy in just little areas, can actually leave a person calloused to the truth, having no sensation of what is actually true or not senseless in their ability to discern whether something is right or wrong. And this is a terrifying thing if you think about it. This leaves someone ultimately ruled by their impulses or whatever the next high may be that they're searching for. So Paul's saying this, listen, don't live like people who are devoid of the truth. Don't live like deceived people do or this will be your trajectory. He goes on in verse 20. And Paul jumps in here and he says, this isn't the way of life you were shown or taught. He says, look, you were taught to put off your old self, to lay aside the former way of life, your former definition of what it meant to be human, to put to death in our language from the series, those deceitful ideas that play to your disordered desires. So that, he says, you can be made new. That you can be actually freed up to put on the new self, the true and rightful identity, a holy way of living, free from the influence of the enemy. But one has to precede the other. The old self has to be put off in order for the new self to be put on. One scholar put it this way, basic conversion must be followed by daily conversion. Contact with Jesus meant that they would be confronted daily, even hourly, with putting to death their old way of life so that they could experience life as they were intended to live it in the kingdom. Now, look down at verse 25. Paul says, therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we're all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Now, for those of you who have been in marriage counseling, you're like, I totally got this nailed. Uh, for those of us who haven't, and I just want to let you know I still haven't, uh, uh, we don't. You know, if you've been in marriage counseling, you've heard this before, don't let the sun go down in your anger, or, like don't go to bed angry with your spouse, or whatever. And this is the context in which we hear this verse a lot. Um, but I don't want us just to breeze past it and be like, I totally know what it means. I actually want us to focus in on it for a minute. Paul here is saying, in light of these realities... In light of the reality of the pagan and spiritually apathetic culture you find yourself in. Sound familiar? In light of the power of the enemy that he can have in your mind. In light of the truth now you've been taught. Put off or put to death or give no room to falsehood of any kind. This word falsehood here means lies. Put off the lies and the deception you've believed. About yourself and about God and about other people. And while you're at it, speak that truth to your neighbor as well because they need to hear it too. In short, Paul is saying learn to recognize the lies in your life. Learn to name them and then reject them by embracing truth. Now in verse 26 he goes on to say, in your anger do not sin and do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. And this... Um, if you're just moving past the marriage counseling point and actually looking at it in the context of, of our actual text tonight, can feel like an abrupt turn in the text. You know, it's like Paul's talking, 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 all of a sudden he's like, and don't be angry. 
you know, like, or whatever. And it's kind of an abrupt change, but it's actually Paul leading us to the heartbeat of our text. Here, he's addressing the nature of the human condition. And with that, he's addressing a list of places that sin can mix with our emotions and our actions. Anger arises after being wounded or injured. That's generally how it goes. It's the space where judgment lives and ultimately where sin can easily run wild. And so in many words, Paul is saying, be quick to deal with any emotion or place in you that will lead to sin. Learn to tame it, even before laying, bed, laying down at night to go to bed. Because if you don't, we're told in verse 27, this can be an opportunity for the devil to come in and have influence over you. It's always in these small and subtle places that the enemy wants to have a foothold. Listen, Paul was very conscious of the reality of the power and the deceitfulness of the devil. And here he is warning those in Ephesus of the same reality. He's saying, pay attention to the little things, the things you would just turn over and go to bed and think, I'll just deal with it in the morning. Those are the places where the enemy often gets a foothold in the life of those who are following Jesus. Now look down uh, at verses 28 to 32. These are our final verses. In them, Paul actually lays out a list of examples from everyday life where we're tempted to give the devil a foothold. Now, I'm not going to read it just for our, all, all of our sake. Um, obviously, there's a lot that could be said here, but I just want us to look at a few things. Paul continues listing out the places where sin could find a foothold in our lives. First, he mentions stealing, then the words that we speak. Now, I know some of you are like, I don't steal anything, which is like good for you. And I thought that too. <laughs> I thought that too. But I feel like this is like a really good time for me to lead out by way of confession to you. So I'm going to do that tonight. I was convicted. And I thought, you know, as the leaders go, so goes the church. So here we go. This is a very, honestly, I think it speaks to a really big crisis we have in Portland right now. Um, so, uh, so I, you know, I'm often in coffee shops throughout the week. And I'm usually in really bougie coffee shops throughout the week. And, um, and the problem is they, they never have Splenda in the coffee shop. So I have been kind of, just I want to confess that I've been actually taking Splenda packets from all the places that give them for free and just hoarding them in my purse in case of an emergency. In case I find myself in a bougie coffee shop and they're like, do you want lavender honey? And I'll be like, no, I want Splenda. Do you know what I'm talking about? You guys are confused? No? Okay. I thought it really mattered. And some of you are like, you're chemically addicted. And to you I will say, quit judging me. Also, we're going to talk about that in a second. So... Um, so whatever you're stealing, don't do that. That's what he's saying. I didn't think I did either. And then the Lord was like, but you keep taking these Splenda packets. I was here last night. I was like, because <laughs> they're expensive. <laughs> anyway, so I'll deal with that tomorrow. Okay. Now, <laughs> now I want to draw your attention to a pattern in the text here. It's really important. Notice first Paul addresses anger. Remember he just talked about it. In your anger do not sin. Then he addresses stealing. And then he goes on to address unwholesome talk. And as he does that, I believe he's outlining for us the places where the enemy often tries to get a foothold in our lives. Think about it. <clears throat> Anger starts in our heart and in our mind. Stealing is done with our hands. And unwholesome talk comes out of our mouth. And I have to wonder if Paul is saying pay attention to these areas. Because this is where the enemy will come for you. 
in the things that happened in your mind, in your heart, what's fostered there. So the things that you think about or who you judge or where bitterness takes root and so on. Or what you do with your hands through sexual expression or through laziness or through your preoccupation with work or even through abuse. Or what you say with your mouth. Are your words actually life-giving? Not just about others, but about yourself as well. Do you bless people with your words? Or do you make fun of them or mock them? Seems that Paul is showing us that there are specific areas in our lives that are susceptible to the schemes of the enemy. It's like what um, Mark Sayer said a few weeks ago when he was here. Remember how he said that the Russian bots that are... um, Uh, algorithmically designed to play to your vulnerabilities like exist in the universe right now. Do you remember that? Was anyone else freaked out by that? Just wildly. Like, I even have an issue with Alexa. Do you know what I mean? I'm like, no, Alexa, don't lock the doors. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Is anyone? No? You guys are? Okay. Look, I'm going to be the safe house when things go awry. I'm just letting you know. Anyway, just like the, the Russian bots that can actually predict what you're going to do or your vulnerabilities, so the devil does that with us. Verse 30, and I'll talk about that in a second, says that we can grieve the Holy Spirit in this space. But in this space, we also have to be mindful of what we're doing to contribute to the grief of the Holy Spirit, what, what we're allowing the enemy to do and have a foothold in. So when verse 30 says, be careful not to grieve the Holy Spirit, he's saying don't do it. Paul's saying don't grieve him because you've been set apart for him. Don't act like people who were not set apart for the work of the Holy Spirit. Don't allow there to be a foothold in your life. Meaning it makes God sad and it works against our intimacy of relationship with him. When we allow these little places to be places where the enemy gets a foothold. Paul's appeal here is that we would walk in our truest identity as redeemed people. To let that be our highest calling. And his call is imperative to us and to his readers. Now, as the text goes on, Paul once again lists out the things that we need to get out of our lives. Specific areas where we might be susceptible to the enemy. uh, So that, hopefully, we can walk in this redeemed identity. Now, I want you to notice that he speaks about bitterness and rage. Does anyone have any idea where bitterness and rage usually starts? In your heart. How did you guess that? Great. And then he talks about brawling. What, what, what are you using when you're brawling? Your hands, your fists. Yeah, some of you are like fists. Okay. <laughs> yes. And what about slander and malice? Where does that come from? Your mouth. Good. You guys, great. So I, what I want you to see is there's this pattern once again in the text. He's, he's reiterating, listen, your susceptibility comes, it'll come in different forms. For some of you, you are more prone and susceptible to bitterness and rage than you are just to simple anger. Some of you are, are more, you have a propensity towards malice and slander over and against just the unwholesome, filthy talk that comes out of your mouth. Some of you will have a propensity to want to use your hands in defense of yourself or to use your hands to control or to manipulate or whatever it may be. And others of you still may just want to steal with those things or whatever whatever exists. But Paul is saying, look, there's a pattern here. Look at these things. 
the heart and the mind, the hands and the mouth. These are places where the enemy wants to get a foothold. And finally, Paul says, look, be compassionate. After all those things are taken care of, put on kindness and compassion and forgive each other as you have been forgiven. Or in other words, be like your rabbi. Let your life reflect the confession that you have made and the reality of that confession in this world. Now Paul is telling those who follow, follow Jesus not to give the devil a foothold. And I don't think he's doing this just because he thinks the Smurfs will influence their heart and soul for evil. But because there is a power in cutting off the enemy long before he has a chance to influence us. There is a, a power in cutting the enemy off long before he comes to kill, steal, and destroy, which is what he is after, both in the physical, emotional, spiritual realm. Those aren't just flippant words. Those are actual uh, language used around what the enemy is after in your life today. Listen, the devil can do nothing through us unless we ourselves willingly allow him to do so. And his opportunities often arise from our own vices. What I mean is that the devil can't coerce you to do anything by force. Instead, he will take advantage of your thought patterns, of your habits, of the company that you keep, and so on. You may never consciously uh, make an arrangement or an agreement with the devil but you can give him permission by the things that you do, the things that you say, and the things that you believe. Which means that we as apprentices of Jesus have a part to play in this whole thing. The problem is we live in a time where people are ruled more by their fascination with the darkness than they are by their faithfulness to Jesus. And this may be one of the enemy's greatest schemes yet. Of course, we're all fascinated by something, but I believe there is an inherent fascination with darkness in our culture. Within the human condition, we find an unhealthy pull towards things that are bad for us. Or maybe even better said, a draw or a curiosity to the broken or the destructive places in our life and in our culture. It's a bent in us that leans away from what's good towards what's not. Think about how much time and energy you spend experiencing or fighting or giving into this pull or these impulses on a regular basis. What's preoccupying your thoughts? Where's your energy being invested? If we really took an inventory of that and did the math, I think we'd be surprised. My point is that fascination, when given enough time, will become an opportunity for the enemy. The problem is there's no formula or timeline for figuring out how and when this happens. So for the type, people who relate to type one on the Enneagram, this is a frustrating space for you. I have a tiny one wing. It's like really tiny. Meet me. And, uh, and so, but I'm into this. This is something I need. So, so this is what I'm talking about. When we think about giving the devil a foothold or an opportunity, I think we more often than not want to see a diagram of what sins provide what kind of opportunity to the enemy. We, we want to tier or to categorize the effect of sinful things in our life. But hear me say this. Sin is uniquely destructive from person to person. So, 
Maybe you're not tempted to listen to filthy music or to sleep with someone at a party, but you will spend three hours a day on Instagram looking for validation and acceptance, which is equally as broken and destructive to your soul. It's just categorically, more socially, morally, even spiritually accepted. Or maybe you don't feel a pull towards pornography, but you do really, really care about what people think about you, so much so that you worry and obsess and even spend hours a day figuring out how you should present yourself to people. And still both of those things are about objectivity and the material world. Maybe just one more drink will actually lead you over the line, but you reason that it's not an issue for your friends, so it's got to be okay for you. Listen, the temptation as disciples of Jesus is to think we're doing better at faithfulness than someone else simply because our sin doesn't look like theirs. But this is the foothold that the enemy is after he often uses things, things we've discredited or ruled out on the tier of sinfulness to actually get the foothold he needs to influence and lead us into greater bondage. The question intrinsic to fascination is how close can we get without actually sinning? But what Paul is reminding us of in our text is that it's not about how close we can get but about how we can maintain holiness and faithfulness from the get-go. What so many of us forget is that our fascination with the darkness actually draws us into and leads us into a greater fascination with the ruler of the darkness. As we get closer to sin we, and we begin to make these small exceptions and we begin to rearrange the truth, we give him, the devil, this opportunity and permission to come and to mess with and influence our present reality. And we often want to divide the two. It's just this thing over here. It doesn't really have anything to do with him. Yes, it does. You saying yes to this is you saying yes to him and we need to get that equation right. We need to wrap our heads around that reality, not so we live in fear, but that so we live in faithfulness. Often our foothold and our fascination become one and the same. And fascination, I've seen it over and over again, actually keeps us from our faithfulness for what Jesus is actually calling us to do. Now you might be thinking, look, Bethany, I know my line, okay? I'm mature, I've like walked in the, the, the church world or whatever, the Jesus camp for a while. I can handle myself. And I'm doing just fine. The devil hasn't gotten me yet. And honestly, I hope that's true. But I don't believe it entirely. Because just as your humanness is bent, so is your ability to discern your threshold. And to know what affects you for better or for worse. For example, some of you may lie to your boss on a regular basis, but you feel like he'd deserves it and you honestly don't feel that thing that's convicting I don't feel that thing inside of me so you just justify it and say it's fine and move on or sometimes you, you cheat on your papers or on the numbers on a spreadsheet and it's not a huge deal and it doesn't really affect anyone in fact in the long run it may be better for other people or at least you think so you justify it to yourself you justify it to yourself and it's fine or maybe you sleep with your boyfriend and you don't feel bad about it because you really really love each other and you really do. You really love each other. And it's that love where you're going like, yeah, I'm just going to keep doing it. 
And sure, I think these examples are a bit grandiose for a lot of you in this room, but we do variations of this all day long. For a lot of us, it looks more like gossiping about our boss and excusing the behavior, or the fact that we won't call our mom or we avoid our dad out of anger or whatever it may be, or maybe we use sarcasm or passive aggressiveness to deal with our anger in a relationship as opposed to actually going to the person and talking to them directly. Or maybe you buy a lot of crap that you don't need and you don't think about where it comes from or who it impacts in the world, and all of that is connected in this space. In the thread of our humanness, we find reasons to believe that we are the exception. It's what the enemy tells us, that we are in some way exempt. And this in itself is the tool and the weapon the enemy is using against so many of us in this room tonight. Our proclivity to the darkness is why we alone can't be trusted to know the line which means that we have to defer to things beyond ourselves to actually understand whether we are giving the devil a foothold. Over and over in our text, Paul talks about the truth and living in unity with it, and he says this is actually the way to avoid the enemy, to be filled with the truth, not to be devoid of the truth. And for us, practically, this, practically, this will require spiritual guardrails. Think about guardrails on the interstate, okay? Think about how the guardrails are never set on the edge of the cliff or the canyon. That would be a bad idea, yeah? Why? Don't answer that. I'm going to tell you. Because if those guardrails are set right on the edge of the canyon, there is no buffer. There is not sufficient protection for those of us who could go wayward and go off the cliff. Those guardrails are actually set feet from the edge of the cliff. Why? Because they're trying to protect us, give us a sufficient buffer to keep us out of danger. And this is what Paul is talking about here. This is the spiritual truth we need to keep us from safe now, uh, from safe from sin. Now, I want to say this for the legalistic people in the room. Some of us have a tendency to do that. Um, Listen, um, we can get in trouble with these kind of parameters. You know, there are people like the Pharisees who built a fence around the Sabbath and all that kind of stuff. And we had parents who wouldn't let us watch PG-13 movies or whatever. But I, I want to say this. We have, we have an issue with legalism, yes. And I think there's rightful reasons to be angsty about it or to be wise about it, to be guarded about it. But I think that for our generation, we actually have more of the opposite problem. That, that we don't have guardrails at all, really. And, and some guardrails are really good, and we need them, and we want them in our lives. But here's what I want to say about those. We're not erring on the side of freedom. We are erring on the side of holiness. Are you with me? So the guardrails, in effect, here are not about what you are free in Christ to do, because, my friends, you are free in Christ to do a lot of things. This conversation is about, these guardrails are about what is, what is helping me maintain my holiness before God, my rightness before God, not just because of rules and regulations, but because of a, a loving and intimate relationship with God. This is what we need. We need these spiritual guardrails to help us move forward. Cornelius Plantinga says in his book on sin, we need the discipline fluidity. We need discipline fluidity and a fluid discipline. 
If I were to ask you now, what are some guardrails you've put up in your life? I wonder how you'd answer. I wonder if you'd know exactly what they are, and I wonder how close they are to the line. Listen, for the disciple of Jesus, if we're looking for truth, we find it in the scriptures. If we're looking for the barometer of uh, our guardrails, this is where we find it. We find it in our scriptures. We find it by the Spirit. We find it with the people of God. So when you need to know your line, this is the practical part, or you need to know whether something will be an opportunity for the enemy, here's what you do. First, you appeal to the scriptures. There are times in the scriptures where things are absolutely crystal clear about sin, okay? And you can, we can have a conversation all the time about context and all this other stuff. Listen, some things just are. Are you with me? They're in the text, it's black and white, and it's like, there it is. Other times, like in our text today, we're told with specificity the things we should avoid to keep us out of sin. So Paul, over and over again, a lot of times he uses this language of flee from, which actually means run from, run from immorality, run from all these different things. This is language that helps us know, push those guardrails back. Stay away from the line. The scriptures are given to us to reveal truth. And they're key in understanding what will lead us to life. If you don't know them, now is the time to know them. This is why we push this. This is why this is central to life in the kingdom. Truth is found here. Next, we appeal to the spirit of God because he does speak and he does care about your life and the circumstances you're in. So a regular practice you should implement is asking him, is this okay? Now look, there's going to be some parties coming up soon. It's Christmas time and we're all grown-ups, but we like to party. And... Um, some of you do, I don't know. And, and honestly, you should be asking yourself the question, is this okay for me to go to this? Some of you know that. Some of you know you should be asking that question. Um, it's not like, oh, it's a high school. No. Some of us know this is a question we should be asking. Is it okay? Um, you know, there are times in my relationship with Gerald, because um, he's my boss and my pastor, um, where I regularly have to go to him and apologize for stuff he's unaware of. So I'm like, hey, this thing. He's like, what? And I'm like, never mind. Uh, just kidding. He's like, oh. And I'll just say like, hey, the tone. God will like, he'll, you know, and he'll be like, hey. Now, what was, it wasn't blatantly disrespectful. You weren't blatantly dismissive or whatever it may be. But I'm asking you to go and repent to him because your tone wasn't as honoring as it could have been. And so I'll go to Daryl and say like, this is so weird Ugh. and annoying. But I need to say this to you. I need to repent of this to you because... Because God's asking me to do this. God wasn't okay. He was like, hey, there's more for you here. There's greater holiness for you here. He's calling you into that. So weird example, but true. Is it okay for me to do this? Is it okay for me to date this person? It's really wise to sit in that question and to ask the spirit of God if that's a good thing. Listen, the scriptures are really clear about some of that. It's going to give you some insight into your relationship about being equally yoked and not equally yoked and all of that. There's some clarity about that in the scriptures, but there's also a time to say, God, is this good for both of us? Is this the wise thing and the right time for both of us? It's a good question to ask. Listen, God knows you inside out, and he is able to speak into you what is absolutely best for you. He's not going to placate you. He's not going to minimize or dismiss or be like, yeah, it's okay. Even if it will lead you to a, a, like a mediocre, minimal way of living, he won't. He will not compromise you. Appealing to the spirit of God and the scriptures are key 
in this space. Finally, we have to appeal to God's people. Appeal to the community around us. That means we got to listen to the people who God has placed in our life, from our Bridgetown community to our parents, some of us, to our pastors and our mentors. These are the people put in your life to help you discern if there is wisdom and life in the choices that you're making. Um, you know, listen, I want to, it's about my community. Um, if my community came to me tonight, in, um, and some of them are in this room, and if, if I was about to buy a Toyota Camry, let's just say, I'm not, I own one. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> um, and it's an 04, so it's styling. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, if I were about to go and be like, guys, I really want to buy this Toyota Camry, and, um, and my community comes to me and they're like, Bethany, we just like are concerned with your finances and how you're spending your money. And we just like don't really think you need a new Camry or whatever. And you're like, they're controlling. Yeah. Anyway, so, uh, and they just all, like, and in agreement kind of just said, we don't feel like this is the right choice for you. I got to tell you right now in my journey with Jesus and my relationship to him, if I would like 99.999% of the time yield to what they say at this point. And, um, and in that, I'm going to trust in their love for Jesus and in their love for me that they can see something that I cannot. And that's a really important part of my journey with Jesus. Same is true with our staff. If our staff came to me and said, like, hey, we see this thing and we're not on board, there's a good chance I'd be like, I'm out. Whatever, it, not from them, out from whatever the thing <laughs> is. To be clear, I like my job. Uh, <laughs> And that's how communal life works. Now, I want to say a few more things about that. Some of you, uh, even in your communities, will have to go against much of what your community normalizes. And that's okay. That's sometimes the reality we find ourselves in. Sometimes um, your community won't say anything at all, and you'll take that as they're okay with it. Like, I'm living with my boyfriend, I'm sleeping with my boyfriend, whatever it may be. They didn't say anything, so they must be okay with it. I want to let you know that's not accurate. There are other people, other spaces and places that you need to be listening. So there are times when your community is not going to be perfect. They're not going to be able to speak perfectly into your situation. But they are a part of the guardrails that God has set in your life to help give you direction and structure. Now, um, trusting God's people to speak into your life uh, is really important. And it is the key in a lot of times in not giving the enemy a foothold. But it demands and requires humility. And it requires an openness and a willingness. And I know that doesn't come easy for a lot of us. So we want to help you <clears throat> in that space. If you're in a Bridgetown community, um, we've got a practice for you that's, that's going to go up soon. <laughs> practicingtheway.org slash fighting. And this is this week's practice. We've kept it really simple because we feel like, um, man, you guys have had a lot you've been working through. This is a lot to digest. But what we want you to do is to take just a set of a few questions we're going to give you. And in that space of safety and community and spending time with each other, we're going to ask that you guys begin to wrestle through how these sets of teachings have impacted you. We want you to work through questions that help you digest what we've been talking about. And the goal here isn't just to answer questions, but it's to create a space for you to actually wrestle and respond to what you're learning and what you're sensing from the Spirit. We want you to look at what this practically means for your day-to-day -day life. If you understand that you have a real enemy and that he is actively trying to get a foothold in your life, what does it mean for the things that you're watching? 
What does it mean for the small moments when you find yourself alone and you're tempted to do this or that? How does the reality of a darkened spiritual power that's over our city impact how you see Portland and how you believe you're called to influence it? And where are you stepping up or out or in in a way that actually combats the darkness as opposed to acting like a civilian who's just a bystander of the whole thing? This is a simple thing, not super complex, but our hope is that you'll be able to hear from each other and from the Spirit in a way that helps you actually press into the reality of what this means for us as a church, but also for us as disciples of Jesus. Now, the call tonight is, is really simple. It's just to take responsibility for what you've heard. Not just in this teaching, but in what you've learned about our enemy. And the question for all of us to wrestle with tonight is where are you giving the devil a foothold? Where are you giving him a foothold in your mind, in your body, in your mouth? First John chapter 3 uh, tells us uh, that Jesus appeared to destroy the works of the devil. And as we go this evening, I, I want us to remember that we have that same spirit within us. And in that same space, the same mission. Yes, the enemy's tactics and schemes are real. Yes, they are deceptive and manipulative. But hear me, they are not certain. And as apprentices of Jesus, we have the authority and power to overcome the enemy by cutting him off before he even gets started. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray and respond.